Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. just in the centre of Kyiv and you can hear the long drone of the air raid siren you can hear it rise and fall there and that's the sound the Ukrainians have been hearing since the beginning of the war in February the, the air raid siren that tells everybody to get indoors and it's quite an eerie thing to hear for the first time there we are my name is David Knowles and this is Ukraine the latest from Kyiv. I'm Sophie Coe. It's Thursday, the 28th of July, day 155. Our usual host, David Knowles, and our defence and security editor, Dom Nichols, are currently in Ukraine. This week, we'll be hearing from them as they meet prominent Ukrainian politicians, visit some significant locations from the war so far, and speak to those who are experiencing the struggle firsthand to hear their stories. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Today, I was joined in our London newsroom by The Telegraph's assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, whilst David dialled in from a market in central Kyiv. Dom Nichols also joined with a very special guest, Ukraine's deputy prime minister, I started by asking David to paint a picture for us of lunchtime in central Kyiv. Oh, hi, everybody. Um, I hope you can hear me all right. I'm just outside uh, Kyiv Food Market, which is an incredibly sort of upmarket and snazzy uh, food hall uh, quite close to the, to the, to, to the river Dnieper uh, here in Kyiv. It's a beautiful day. I'm sitting outside. I've uh, just been basically sitting here sort of talking to quite a few people. Just met Anna, Anna Vertsan um, for, for lunch, and we had a, a very good chat um, ahead, of, ahead of Dom and I heading back. So that was absolutely lovely. Um, later meeting uh, um, Ilya, uh, our trans- translator, for my translator yesterday in Butcher, again just to talk to him a little bit more about his background and say thank you for his help. Um, and so I'll, I'll sort of just be here really until until we have to go go back to the hotel and head to the station, I think. Um, so it's yeah, as I said, it's a beautiful, beautiful day here in Kiev. Um, it, it's it's it, it's it's odd. I'll be completely honest. You, know, we had a, an air raid siren this morning, which uh, which which you, know, you could hear across the city, and then 20 minutes later. People are just as calm, going around their, their, their daily lives, going for lunch, meeting their friends. Um, there's pe- people are sort of people are just having to, you know, like, as Anna puts it, really. There's just sort of you, you've got to do, you've got to get through it, um, and, and live a normal life as possible. So that, that's what I've been seeing this morning. And just switching back to that moment where you heard the air raid siren this morning, what was it like? Well, I sort of so I saw the saw the telegram notification on my phone, um, and sort of opened the window of the hotel just to, just to see. And you can just hear it in the distance. You can hear it. It was quite far away. And the, it's, a, it's a, a quite high tone, which then d- decreases at the end. So it's, it's very, very distinctive. Um, and yeah, me, me immediately, I mean, actually, actually, this one didn't last for very long. We got the all clear sort of 20 minutes later, by which time I was sort of on the ground floor and, 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 and heading out. Um, but it's, it was an incredibly eerie thing. I mean, it's not a sound you want to hear, frankly. It's, it's really not. Um, then to go from that to, to the food market and, you know, as I said, people just going around their daily life is, it's, it's a quite, it, it, you get a sense of just how co- well, courageous everybody has to be, every, every single man, woman, and child here, because th- th- this is the reality of their lives. You know, they're trying to live as normally as possible um, under threat of, you know, threat of attack um, every, every single day. 
Totally. And talking about people living their normal lives, listeners on our podcast will have already heard a a dispatch from you after um, a dinner you had in Kiev last night. Can you tell us a bit more about the local food that you ate there? So I'll say, you know, Ukrainian cuisine is absolutely incredible. The Ukrainians take their food very, very seriously. Um, We had uh, some raw pork called salas, which you have after vodka. We had um, fresh fresh tomatoes, large ripe tomatoes, uh, um, some onion. We had all sorts of, all manner of different sorts of dumplings uh, with meat, some sweets and with cherries inside. Um, This is accompanied by some homemade uh, vodka from our our hosts and who's telling us how it's very very normal in Ukraine for, for for the grandparents to, to make you some vodka and I, I put a picture of it you know on my on my instagram story because it's it's a different color it's we, we brits imagine vodka as being you know clear like like water and this is this is actually brown because it's, it's homemade um uh, and that was quite some quite something um and it was delicious frankly um so yeah i mean every I, the, the food here is i think there's a i, I always got we, we, we've interviewed two chefs for for this podcast over the over the five months um over the five months we've been doing it five six months and I can. I, I'm starting to understand why the Ukrainians really care about their food, and it's and it's some of the best I've tasted in Europe, frankly. And away from the food, the people that you were having dinner with, what did they say about the the limits to which they have on their normal lives now, and what extent life in Kiev is normal at the moment? Yeah, it's 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 odd because we're we're talking, you know, these two 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 young guys, I think, twenty five and twenty twenty seven, I believe. And so it's a very normal conversation. Um, talk about life in London, life in Kiev, and then and then suddenly the war the war comes in. You know, we heard a sound in the distance. So everybody goes over to the to, to the window to see to see what it was. You know, was that a missile? Was that? And then we return to dinner. Um, yeah, it, it's, I mean something. I, something of course we, we all know is that every every single Ukrainian kind of knows where they were at the beginning of the war, knows what they did, um, knows how they reacted, and, and that that moment is is burnt burnt on every, everybody's minds. Um, so we, we've 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 heard now many many different stories of what of how people reacted and what they did and you know um, Alexander who was, was telling us how in the first you know hours first days of the war when, when the, the call went up to mobilize you know the, the recruitment center was was full of people and that 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 experience of being there with hundreds of other people ordinary people some some as old in you know, the 60s and 70s had come to come to fight to come to defend their city um was incredibly moving and how he was trying to find his place and to find his role um, and what he could do to, to help to help uh, his, his fellow countrymen um, so it, also we, we were in a district called Obolon, which is to the north of Kiev. It's a sort of Soviet with a capital S. It's high, high rise apartments um, um, and sort of clustered, all clustered together. And they were saying, you know, how in the early weeks that this was, you know, the Russians nearly, nearly got as far as, as Obolon. What, what they did, you know, an APC which got lost and had to be tracked down by, by the Ukrainians. Um, so so even, even in this district had seen, had seen, um, seen some action in the early in the early weeks of the war. And this is just an, it's just an ordinary residential street, ordinary residential district. Nothing. I mean, it's 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 crazy to be there and just look you know look out of your window and they saw a Russian tank and they can point out you know what what they saw. So it's it's quite a humbling experience really talking to people. As I said, everybody everybody has a story. Definitely. Thank you, David. Um, and the reason, obviously, that you, this um, well, we've heard that there's a possible reason for the air raid siren going off this morning is this kind of heightened tension after the counterattacks, which we've been discussing for the last few days in the Curzon region. Now, Francis, I'm wondering if you could give us the latest updates from Curzon um, over the last 24 hours since we last spoke on this podcast. Certainly. Um, great to hear from from David. Glad that all's well with him and, and look forward to, to, to hearing from Dom shortly. So, yes, um, the Ukrainian counterattack, we understand, has virtually cut off the Russian-occupied southern city of Kurzon and left thousands of Russian troops stationed near the Dnieper River. Um, the British MOD has said that Ukrainian forces are, quote, gathering momentum, close quote, and have used new long-range artillery to damage at least three of the bridges crossing the Dnieper. Quote, Russia's 49th Army, stationed on the west bank of the Dnieper River, now looks highly vulnerable. It said so um, quite significant developments there. The loss would severely undermine Russia's attempts to paint the occupation as a success. Again, that's according to the British analysis of the military developments. We've got a very interesting piece by our regular on this podcast, um, Roland Oliphant, who's written about the significance of the Battle of Kherson and how it will test Ukraine. But it won't necessarily be the 
the end of the war if the campaign goes successfully. And there's some interesting quotes that I plucked out, but I highly recommend that people read it in full. So um, one thing that he says is that the the next step after this campaign in Kherson would be, and to destroying the bridges, would be to deplete the Russian air defences in the area to allow Ukrainian drones and ground attack jets to operate. Russian commanders, of course, would then face the same choice uh, that the Ukrainians faced in the Hansk region, whether they stay and fight or order a retreat early enough to avoid encirclement and potential disaster. So that's what we're looking at in the sort of long term picture around the significance of this this counterattack. Um, he also goes on and says that Ukrainian advances so far have been small scale probing attacks. We're yet to see whether they have the superiority in infantry, armor and artillery to mount conventional offensive against dug-in positions. So it's still very early days, early hours indeed of this um, of this counterattack. but it would appear the Ukrainians are laying the groundwork um, for what could be a substantial campaign. But that's the latest on the on the military question around Kherson. So obviously we've spoken about just spoken about the Ukrainian counterattack. Now that has come with some news about the um, impact that the war is now having on Russian troops that we finally got some figures. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, well, we're hearing that more than 75,000 Russians have been killed or injured in the war in Ukraine so far, according to classified estimates from the Biden administration. If those numbers, of course, are true, then they are, I think it's fair to say, considerably higher than we may well have expected. So this classified briefing, which has first been reported by CNN, was provided to lawmakers in the House of Representatives. And if, as I say, that figure is accurate, it would mean that approximately half the number of Russian troops committed to the war effort have been killed or injured during the war so far. Western officials have previously suggested, of course, that as many as 150,000 Russian troops had been thrown at the invasion. Now, we've talked in the past on this podcast um, numerous times about attrition rates, casualty rates, and how those can impact a country's capacity to fight. And indeed, those kind of casualty figures would be considerably higher than would be sustainable in a long, long term campaign. So something would have to change. Either Putin would have to mobilize more forces or he have to adapt tactics even further to reduce casualties. So that's the sort of broad brush significance of all this. Um, As I say, the British MOD have said in their update that from their perspective, the Russian army looks highly vulnerable. That's their quote. So, of course, this uh, latest information um, on on Russian losses would, would speak to that. Certainly. And it reminds me of something that Vitaly Klitschko said when he was on this podcast and Twitter space earlier this week where he said it's a terrible disaster for Ukraine but it's also a terrible disaster for the Russians and they he's waiting for them to realise that um, and I would recommend obviously listeners if you didn't hear Vitaly Klitschko on the podcast earlier this week then do go and listen back to that um, interview with David and Don because when he said that I think it really hits home and when we see these figures it um, brings the message home even more Um Now, I think we might have Dom Nichols soon, but I'm quickly going to ask you first, Francis, about the new news we had today um, from the UK's National Security Advisor, who made some quite um, strong, strong suggestions about nuclear war. Yes. So there's been a very interesting briefing by Sir Stephen Lovegrove, who uh, is uh, very senior here uh, in terms of security. He's actually the UK's national security advisor. And he said that the West and China could, as things stand, quote, miscalculate their way into nuclear war. He said that Britain has clear concerns about Beijing's expanding and modernising of its nuclear arsenal, adding that China's, quote, disdain, close quote, for arms control agreements was a daunting prospect. And it's clear that this is a signal of a hardening UK position on China, one that we've already talked about at length this week. He's warning, essentially, that the world may no longer have the Cold War safeguards that prevented nuclear war with the USSR um, in the in the Cold War um, uh, over the the course of those decades. 
And consequently, there are more risks here. And of course, what he's talking about here are things like the the telephone that connected uh, Moscow to the White House um, that was introduced after the Cuban Missile Crisis um, between Khrushchev and and uh, and JFK, and numerous other diplomatic channels that were were always open to avoid dangerous escalation. Um, and so, I think it's, you know, I don't want to alarm listeners and think, oh, you know, this basically means that there's <laughs> nuclear war or something like that. That's not the case and that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that in the Cold War there was an understanding of uh, between powers of the dangers of nuclear escalation. But because we're living in a sort of post-Cold War world, we may well be, be developing new weapons, building up capacity when those safeguards are no longer present. So I think that's the essence of what he's saying here. But as I say, it should be read in the context of a broadening strengthening of the British and NATO position around the threat posed by China and, and other autocratic regimes, of which Russia, of course, is one, who have essentially entangled themselves in the world economy um, and in uh, numerous ways with with energy provision um, and all sorts. I mean, healthcare as well. Um, and this is now, I think, a part of a process that we're seeing of, of that disentanglement. But of course, when one is so entangled with, with an economy like China's that produces 40% or 50% of the world's manufacturing, it is not something you can reverse overnight. And not only that, it's something that would have severe economic ramifications. I mean, we've talked at length on this podcast about the severe damage that's being wrought in Europe by um, Putin turning off the taps on energy. But you imagine how much more extrapolated that would be if it were on all elements of manufacturing, if this was to happen with China, if, say, they were to invade Taiwan. So this is the broader strategic picture here. And this is why I think it's relevant to bring China up in this this discussion, is that Ukraine has acted, acted, excuse me, as the sort of prime mover of a different way of thinking about global security now. And it has broken down the consensus that dictated the, the, the years and the decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union um, in the, the late 80s, early 1990s. And we're seeing a, a, a broader reflection in the West now as a result. And so I think it should be read, as I say, in that context. And this again plays into the leadership battle going on in the UK at the moment, because we know that Liz Truss is kind of hawkish on her her view of China. Absolutely. Um, I, I, so Liz Truss, of course, being one of the leadership contenders uh, to succeed Boris Johnson, the current foreign secretary, she has been a much more vocal critic um, of, of China, arguably more, than, more so than anyone else in the cabinet. Uh, and so, yes, her if she does become prime minister, I think we can see the start, at least, of, of, of quite significant um, untangling, as I say, of, of Chinese involvement in Britain. Just like across Europe, of course, China has been heavily invested in energy services here. I believe Hinkley Point is uh, quite substantially invested, um, uh, owned by Chinese investment. And of course, there are concerns about what that might mean about energy security. It's also enormous amount of investment into university sectors. So um, a lot of universities have opened up Chinese research centers funded by big Chinese donors. And there have been concerns about sort of censorship that, that there have been sort of certain things that have been done to appease the Chinese state to to enable this funding and research funding as well. So all sorts of of things now are are being, I think, reconsidered and will be reconsidered if Liz Truss becomes prime minister. Um, I'm not saying that wouldn't be the case under Rishi Sunak if he were to succeed, but it would appear that he has been slightly more concerned, I think it's fair to say, about the the implications of, 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 of triggering sort of a trade war with Europe or with broader Europe um, uh, world powers because obviously he's a former chancellor and he knows the the ep- economic consequences of doing that. But, um, but certainly it's been fascinating to see this shift on China in recent weeks. Um, as I say, not only in Britain, in NATO, um, very, very strong words indeed. And I think um, that this will be one of the big if not even more significant offshoots of the war in Ukraine will be how China is considered by the West. It will no longer be a, a sort of, a, I think, a, a trading power in the manner that it was. There is this, this is a, a wake-up call. Thank you so much, Francis. Now, I believe we're going to be joined imminently by our defence and security editor, Dom Nichols, who is in the office of the Ukraine's deputy PM, Ola Stefanitia. So, Dom... Am I right in saying that we can hand over to you and Olga now? Yeah. Hi, Sophie. Hi, everybody. That, that's right. I'm, I'm in the um, office of 
Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister, Olga Stefanishnya, uh, responsible for uh, European integration and Euro-Atlantic affairs. And uh, I'd just like to, to spend a few minutes here with the, with the Deputy PM talking about the role of the office and, uh, and, the, and the challenges. I mean, it's, as we've said many, many times on this, on this podcast, a lot of, a lot of the, the reasons seemingly for this war is, is Vladimir Putin's irrational uh, fury at not, not willing to see a successful, prosperous, sovereign, economically viable former Soviet state on, it, on its borders. And European integration and that relationship with the, with the US and with NATO is absolutely central to that. So I think it'll be a, a fascinating chance to introduce, introduce this topic and hear from Deputy Prime Minister. Um, and, uh, and yeah, with that, uh, um, Deputy PM, very, very, thank you very much indeed for having us here. Uh, welcome to the Telegraph's Twitter space and, and podcast. Um, and as I just said, if you wouldn't mind just spending a couple of moments, first of all, to sort of explain your role here, what the office is and, uh, and, and what it's set up for, how it docks into your government. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, in, uh, indeed, uh, it's, uh, it's very important to reach a broad audience in explaining uh, something which plays a crucial role in Ukraine and in uh, issues related to European and uh, Euro-Atlantic uh, integration. Uh, okay, so European and Euro-Atlantic integration, uh, and uh, basically uh, this mandate I had even before the full-scale war, which started on 24-7, has been mostly targeted to uh, reach the goal enshrined in the Constitution to gain the full membership in EU and NATO as a strategic goals of, uh, of uh, Ukrainian foreign and internal policy. And of course, after the beginning of the full-scale war, um, uh, all of us immediately in the first minute where we heard the shelling and the bombing of, uh, of the cities around the U uh, Ukraine, our mandates has been immediately transformed to the mandates of ministers of victory. So we had to do everything we can to make sure that we can, uh, by our efforts, uh, contribute to ending this war and uh, and uh, restoring peace and serenity on our land and prevailing of, of the democracy. So um, uh, over the first days after the 24th of February, I've been doing literally everything from, uh, you know, held, handling humanitarian stuff uh, to negotiating uh, the military support to Ukraine to whatever I could reach. And of course, prioritizing uh, the cooperation with NATO on issues on the exchange of information and uh, exchange of data and coordinating the efforts on the non-military support which has been provided by NATO to Ukraine. But um, it came very crystal clear on the fifth day of war when we uh, submitted the application for membership to European Union that uh, the, the key to the victory of Ukraine is in making global decisions because the full-scale war is, of course, taking place on our soil. But this is the war, war which is for much more global issues than just like the territorial issues. This is about the rules. This is about the values. This is about the the uh, impossibility to make military invasions to a peaceful, um, independent and sovereign country. And we understood that uh, every hour on Ukrainian battlefield, we're writing the new global history. And we made this decision to apply for membership in European Union for two reasons. First, we understood that uh, with such neighbor like Russia, you can have 24th of February anytime. We are lucky to have these eight years of transformations, which set in stone many reforms. And the application for membership was first and foremost to make the decision to recognize the aspiration of Ukrainian people. And it has been done. Uh, and uh, then granting the candidate status for Ukraine uh, has been a legal commitment of all EU member states that we will stand together until the very last moment the war is over and then we will stand together afterwards and then we will become part of the family we will be sitting over the table because this is the place we are fighting for and uh, this has basically uh, transformed all of my mandate which i had before 24th of uh, uh, of february to something which is 
an essential part of the victory we we had and that uh, that brings a lot of new energy into everything uh, i do i have a relatively small office in the government but basically uh i have a huge army of uh, politicians and the leaders of different institutions who prioritize now European integration. And uh, the surrealistic understanding is that literally we're operating under the shellings and bombings. Now it's like relatively more calm in, in Ukraine, but the effectiveness of our operation is 10 times more uh, more efficient than, than it was before 24th of, of uh, February. And of course, uh, uh, president of Ukraine has become not only the chief of the command, but also he's the chief of the European command. He's the leader of this uh, of this uh, uh, of this uh, of this policy. And today we celebrate the National Statehood Day. And while he was addressing to the the nation, he said that basically today is the day when our European track becomes part of the internal policy. And this becomes the best towards preparing our country to the victory and the reforms we will be doing throughout that. So the transformation of my mandate after war is now to coordinate internal reforms in a country in various sectors to make sure that by the moment we win the war, we are ready, prepared to rebuild our country and build Ukraine back better and closer to European Union. And in those early days of the war, when you reached out to the international community, I'm thinking particularly Europe, but, but the international community more, more broadly, um, were you surprised at the response you received, either surprised good or surprised disappointed? Uh, well, there's been a lot of... Um the, there's been a lot of inspiration and frustration, to be frank, um, in uh, speaking with different leaders of international organization, ministers and uh, leaders of the government of various countries across across the world, not only in uh, uh, in Europe. Um, basically, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of. Uh, politicians and leaders uh, reached president, reached also me personally, uh, just like uh, half past four in the morning when the war just started. So I was here in my office uh, already at six o'clock in the morning, and I already received a lot of phone calls with the people just calling me, like the, the ministers and some of the colleagues from the NATO and EU uh, institutions. They were just calling by asking a question, what can we do? So this was not something like we were reaching. They were reaching back to me personally, uh, asking how can they help. And we were ready. Uh, we were preparing to this kind of scenario to the extent we could. Of course, we couldn't imagine that this would be a full-scale military attack throughout all of the territory of Ukraine, including Kiev. But we knew what we need in terms of military support. Uh, we knew what we need in terms of um, uh, mobilizing the unity, let's say the so-called anti-Putin, anti-war coalition. And uh, we were extremely coordinated. So, um, But there's been a lot of frustration as well. Um, in uh, my communication with some of the colleagues I've been in contact for years and, and for months. And I thought that this has been the, um, let's say, the most trustworthy and understanding partners, but they came up to uh, be a bit of distancing from taking the decision and hiding behind bureaucracy. And it really uh, literally caused a tears on my eyes when I heard that, just like making some calls, like after the shelling of the theater in Mariupol and hearing like this cold voices of people trying to distance themselves, I mean, from that. That has been the case. But the positive things is that uh, our energy and dedication really caused transformation, even in the most cold-hearted leaders. And what do you put that distance and the cold heart, as you describe it, down to? I mean, the, 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 the war took I think, almost everybody by surprise, including the Russian army. So, so there, I, I, I'm prepared to give a... a bit of the benefit of the doubt here to domestic politicians and leaders who were just shocked, who just could not believe it and spent some time to, to get over that. But they've had enough time now. So do you put it down to, to domestic politics or a genuine unwillingness, as the suggestion has been from some countries such as Germany and France, that, to challenge the, the order of Europe at the moment and the relationship with Russia because of the economic costs we're seeing through gas and what have you. I mean, why do you think there was that, that cold-hearted response? And if you're, 
if you're prepared to sort of give me an indication north, south, east or west, um, that would be delightful. Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm not about like giving the indications. It would be uh, extremely, uh, extremely frustrating to those uh, to those cold-hearted people to, to hear that. I, I, I guess, but I would definitely write memoirs where, where I will put everybody like personally to 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 that understanding. Um, uh, I would say uh, it took us quite a while to mobilize the broader global understanding that none of the existing conventional mechanisms had been, uh, had been um, helpful in terms of preventing this war, uh, as well as none of the existing conventional mechanisms could stop the war. I mean, uh, uh, we can, uh, and uh, that took us quite, quite a time. So there's been a discussion where maybe you can have the negotiations, maybe you can, I mean, just uh, um, just um, adhere to some ultimatums. Uh, but immediately after that, the, the understanding came that it's not about the negotiations. It's just about not legitimizing everything which has been happening. And, uh, of course, uh, when we were speaking about the terrible war crimes taking place on our soil, says the first literally, like, uh, days of the war, uh, we were not heard until the whole world had seen the pictures from Bucha and Irpin. You know, so um, so there's been a lot of sort of inertia, thinking that uh, maybe uh, bureaucracy or some instruments could be uh, could be helpful in terms of acting somehow. Everybody understood that some actions should be taken. And uh, there were like not always a willingness to get the personal commitment, the political leadership to take some actions. Some of the leaders, some of the ministers tried to hide behind, behind the bureaucracy. Uh, but uh, it has never been the case. And uh, we understand now that we have mobilized this unity, this, this energy of leadership to stop and to deter, uh, to deter Russia. But it took us quite, quite time. And uh, just, just the last element, some of the international organizations like UN, like handling the wars is their business, to be frank. And Russia has been in this business uh, with all the wars on, uh, on, on this earth, basically, uh, with the United Nations. Though, so they're extremely advanced in utilizing the infrastructure of the UN system. So, uh, and uh, this goes also to the International Red Cross Organization, who has to stick for the Geneva Conventions and, and, and to act uh, appropriately. Uh, but they never knew that Ukraine will not play these shadow games. So when uh, I saw the information about the crimes committed, when I saw the, the, the bodies of those children and those civilians who have been facing uh, this war, uh, and I heard these stories, I couldn't hear this, uh, this cold-hearted people. I, I wasn't care about any con, uh, conventional or unconventional mechanism. I've I, I been pushing for the necessity to act. And uh, and this has changed the situation. This has changed the situation dramatically. And the leaders have started to act in a way which would lead to result. So uh, the Rammstein format has been established. The G7 coordination on sanctions has been established. These all the formats of the leaders taking the decision. Um, I would like to ask you in a moment about the, the, the bureaucracy you say some, some countries have been hiding behind and wonder if, if an element of that is the the requirement to join the the eu and where ukraine might have to have to prioritize some areas for example the issue of corruption in in government but i'll come back to that in in a moment because you touched on one of my personal hobby horses there the united nations i i i think the united nations should have done more should be in a position to do to do more um when mr guterres the secretary general was here a few two months ago um were these points presented to him either in front of the cameras or, or behind 
Yes, it has been presented to, to him personally, and it's been publicly communicated by us through, throughout the way, and it played its uh, its role, basically, in, in changing the situation. Um, I can also um, not go into very details of this process, but uh, I think the whole world came up to know about Ukraine, a couple of things. First is, of course, our resilience and, and, and resistance, and second, how uh, skillful and professional Ukrainian administration is and that we keep uh, we kept on operating even throughout the war and that we are not uh, uh, in a position to be uh, to be uh, let's say manipulated with so we knew that we have a war we knew that there are international organizations having a specific mandate and we required them to deliver on their mandate and if they were not delivering on that or manipulating by ukrainians somehow we were vocal about that and that played its role so you uh, as you now see uh secretary general gutierrez has took the lead on the food security crisis this has been a uh, position of ukraine that un has to deliver at least on a part of its mandate on humanitarian response. Uh, the same about the role of the International Red Cross Organization, which has been very, uh, let's say, uh, blurry uh, in the beginning of the war. Now it's been, uh, it's been absolutely clear. So, uh, and things became more effective, I would say. And just before we move move on, to stick with the UN for a moment. So you, you say that UN deserves credit for the grain deal last week. When you look at the fine detail of some of the the, the agreements there, it it can be uh, can be suggested it is somewhat soft on Russia, i.e., there there is no mechanism really under the the agreement to say, well, hang on, the grain that you are trying to export Russia is from Ukraine. I mean that 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 bit of moving the grain to the ports to then get out that seems to be a little bit fudgy. Is that fair? Do you think the UN? Do you think the UN are honest brokers here and are going to hold Russia to account not only to allow grain out, but allow all of your grain out through your ports? Uh, we praise the leadership of uh, Mr. Gutierrez in having this deal. Uh, but uh, as we were communicating from the very beginning, we do not have any illusions on, on Russia and on Russia commitment or sticking to any agreement. And uh, it's a bit unfortunate to us to hear no reaction from the UN following the fact that next day, after the deal has been signed, uh, Russian rockets, two Russian rockets, uh, were shelled to the Odessa city port, to the grain storages, which has been part of the deal. So, and this is uh, the port which is in the center of the city. It's in the center of Odessa, and they reached their goals. And uh, no reaction followed that, fo followed by that. So it really, um, let's say, put, puts a question mark on uh, whether this deal is uh, is uh, manageable, uh, whether the efforts UN and Turkey will take to that regard will be uh, enough to release the grain. Uh, on our side, we made a clear statement that we stick to our obligations. So we do our part in terms of technical preparedness, by, but we do not have any illusions on, uh, on uh, sticking to this arrangement by Russia. And in fact, we require a strong reaction and uh, additional sanctions over Russia because they are stealing the grains from the ports with Azov Sea, the grains and the, and the, and the metal scrap. Them. Uh, so they st simply stealing, revealing this, uh, these products and, um, and selling them to the third country's market. So uh, it's absolutely unacceptable and this should be also recognized and condemned. So you have question marks over the deal. Do you also have question marks over the UN's ability to operate at this level in the modern world, where, where a P5 member of the UN Security Council has invaded another country? I think uh, that this is exactly the exam UN now is passing. Okay, we now understand that with Russia on the Security Council having a seat, it's rather complicated to, um, let's say, seek for any role UN can play in ending the war. Okay, so we're putting it behind the brackets, right? But uh, UN has been uh, uh, developing a huge infrastructure of organizations related to humanitarian resports for Africa, for Asia, for various parts of the world. And now when UN itself stating that 20% of the world population would be affected by the food crisis caused by the Russian war, UN has to mobilize each and every instrument they have 
to uh, unblock it. And if they are not able to do it, so UN is unable to exist then. Now, one of the um, issues that is very quickly grabbed by those who might want to stymie, slow down or stop Ukraine's membership or accession to the EU is um, corruption. Um, how are you addressing the, the issues that have been presented to you about, uh, about this area of, of political activity in your country? Well, I wouldn't say uh, I don't like. I would rather say I hate when uh, when uh, when we're associated with the, with the corruption. Because what we do right now, and even within the recommendations of European Commission, is just like we, we're closing the leftovers of the whole anti-corruption reform. So it's not like we have a corruption. Like uh, we had uh, a lot of like elements for the petty corruption when people and citizens has to reach the the officials for various services for various documents and etc but I can speak of myself so I haven't seen any uh, public official for anything I need to to reach the government services everything is fully digitalized we have a purely transparent all the elements of the public procurement in the government so you can you can trace each and every like part of the paper uh, bought by government, but we still have a lot of leftovers. So we've um, approved the legislation on uh, anti, let's so-called anti-oligarch legislation, which, um, um, which makes it public uh, that some of the substantially financed business industries have the influence to the media or to the political life or financing political parties. This is the element of transparency we should end. And also we have already completed uh, basically the, uh, the selection for the prosecutor of the anti-corruption prosecution office. So he has been appointed today and we closed this, this, uh, this let's say, uh, apart. And also we announced the competition for the director of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau. And the mandate of the previous director expired like some time, uh, some time ago when the war has been already there. So, so, so we're just closing the, the leftovers. But largely our state, uh, if we're applying it to an ordinary citizen, right, like operates in a very digital way. Everything is transparent and all the registers we have and data, they're also open. So there's been a lot of um, uh, a lot of manipulations in that regard. And we understand what are the elements. I mean, triggering uh, this as a bell over us and we're working on that. So and we will deliver on uh, will deliver very well by by October. But I think uh, that one of the crucial moments when the decision to grant Ukraine candidate status uh, was done, despite of these concerns on anti-corruption, not ended the judicial reform, was uh, the, the message we were sending that you should finally start trusting Ukraine. Because uh, in the time when Russia manipulates with, uh, with gas, uh, with energy, when Russia tries to undermine nearly every value that we've been cherishing for years and decades, uh, Ukraine has been showing that we are a trustworthy and reliable partner. Uh, the last three energy and gas crises, which has been taking place in Europe, has uh, gave no sign that Ukraine is not delivering on its obligation. We remain the trustworthy partners as uh, in issues of, tr of gas transit, we have managed to integrate into uh, EU electricity market on the tenth day of war, basically. And we, in a time of war, when electricity infrastructure has been severely damaged, remain a reliable partner within electricity market of European Union. So, and and there is a lot of other elements, like uh, even 6.5 million of Ukrainian people who fled to European Union, but the, none of these people has caused any kind of complexities and problems in being placed in the in, in such a huge amount among the territory of European Union. So you should see us in the way we are and you should tr finally start trusting us. We do our job on our side. We understand what's need to be done to tick these boxes in terms of the rule of law generally. We do it, but also uh, the whole world should start looking at us in a bit of different way. And just moving on to my final area, how close are you to EU membership and NATO membership? 
are you on the track you would hope to be? What challenges are left? And do you think the closer you get to these institutions, that actors such as Vladimir Putin, and there will be others, will, will ramp up the language about its escalatory, its provocative, and, and try and uh, undermine the security aspects of, of Europe in order to stymie your application? Well, basically, Putin now is a is a, is a younger brother. Uh, Russia now is a younger brother of China, basically, and Russia is not something uh, which should be treated uh, a country or this regime or Kremlin should not be treated as something that threatens to uh, to somebody. Basically, the only thing which has not been uh, used uh, on our soil throughout this time of war is the nuclear weapon. Uh, everything the world has seen only after the Second World War and throughout the Second World War has been already taking place on our soil for this 155 days. So no threats are applicable. No threats are to uh, to put any hesitation in decisions taken uh, towards uh, towards Ukraine or towards Ukrainian aspirations. And we see that basically Putin himself over these days has has busted all of the myths he's been raising and cherishing for years. Now you see that Sweden and Finland has become members of NATO. And the, the border with NATO has, uh, between NATO and Russia has increased for more than 2,000 square kilometers. And this narrative is not applicable to that, to, uh, to, uh, to, to this country. So uh, this is not something somebody should reflect at all. And uh, basically in 2014, when we had the revolution of dignity, it was because of the pressure from Russia not to sign with the signature of the association agreement. We did it. We implemented it. We are top 20 importers to European Union. And uh, basically, the war which started on 24th of February is not something that because we have a free trade area with the European Union. So we should stop this policy of strategic ambiguity towards Russia because this policy only allows Russia to grow up in this paranoia, let's say. Olga Savnishnia, Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine, thank you very much for talking to The Telegraph. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that, Dom Nichols and Olga Stefansicia, the Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine, just there. Amazing to hear from her. Francis, I wonder if you had any reactions to Dom and Olga's conversation there. I mean, we could speak for hours on it, but if you could have just one thought, what would it be? Yes, it was really fascinating hearing her analysis there towards the end on this question of the charge of corruption in Ukraine, how this is often being used as a weapon against further... European integration of that country. And I think she made a very interesting observation there by saying that it didn't stop further integration of Russia, which, of course, we know has been a country ruled by a kleptocracy and oligarchs for decades now. That didn't stop them. So why is this sort of suddenly being used as a barrier for Ukraine? And then, of course, she went on to talk about all of the initiatives that they've launched to try and tackle what has been a systemic issue in Ukraine's past. So I thought that was an incredibly interesting comment uh, and one that no doubt will, will need sort of further analysis and uh, by by us here at the paper but also um, by sort of foreign policy people around the world because that clearly is a is, is a very very good point and I think she made it very eloquently definitely and um, what did you make of her discussions around Ukrainian corruption well, I, I thought um, she clearly, given the depth of her response and, and the duration in which she spoke about it, 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 they clearly see it as a major issue. This wasn't something when Dom asked the question that uh, that she was able to sort of or, or felt that she could sort of uh, just dismiss. Um, she, I think, addressed it for about six or seven minutes, if not more, um, talking about the initiatives, talking about and acknowledging that it was an issue in the past and then making this point, as I say, that Russia um, has and, and, and other countries' practices have been such that it hasn't led to, to issues in the past of countries like Russia being uh, integrated in the energy apparatus of Europe. And so, you know, it's a bit rich now, I think was her point reading between the lines. She's saying it's a bit rich now uh, for, for, for countries now to be using this as a means not to further integrate the Ukrainian economy uh, and, and, and politically into the European project uh, when, of course, um, uh, it hasn't been a barrier for, for, such, uh, for other countries that have known to be 
corrupt that have known to be um, well seizing and annexing territory which of course Russia did in 2014 so as I say I thought that was a very interesting observation and of course all of her commentary as well um, at the beginning talking about the current political situation around the United Nations um, as well Um, lots of things to digest there and and no doubt there'll be many listeners who listen to it and think oh I need to re-listen to that because there was a lot of things to, to digest. Definitely. And I should say before we go that we have a very jam-packed week of interviews and this will not stop on Friday. It will continue into next week where we'll we'll have Dom and David back in London and we'll be hearing their reflections on their time in Ukraine. Um, And now, Francis, you have a final thought, so I'm going to hand over to you. I do have a final thought, Sophie. Now, obviously, this podcast isn't about us, far from it. But before we go, I think listeners should be aware that this is actually Sophie's last day on the podcast and her last week at The Telegraph. It goes without saying that, Sophie, you've been an enormous part of this podcast since it began following the invasion. You've been not only presenting it um, in David's absence, but you've been an enormous part of the production team. Um, A lot of work goes into producing every episode of this. And Sophie's been at the very forefront of that for months now. So on behalf of us, of course, here at The Telegraph, but also the millions now of listeners who've heard your voice over recent months, thank you for all of your hard work. Quick thing from me, obviously, Sophie, well done. Thank you for all of your hard work and best of luck in your next role. Do everybody follow Sophie Coe. She's going to be an absolute star. Well, she already is. Oh, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. It has been the honour of my career doing this um, podcast, the best thing I've ever done. And I'm so thankful to David and Dom and Francis and Louisa and Giles behind the scenes and all the social team at The Telegraph as well. I'm going to name Carla, Sophie, Jaden and Gemma, who do all of the um, production behind the scenes. So yes, as Francis said, this is very much not about us. I might be going, but the podcast does not stop. And as we said, it will keep going until Ukraine is a free country once again. Ukraine, the latest, is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. David and Dom aim to join us every day, live from Ukraine. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. And if you're in Ukraine... Keep an eye out for our two intrepid reporters. Thanks to Louisa Wells, Giles Gear, and Carla Abreu for producing this episode.